Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is Primetime Politics, the Vote 2019 edition. Coming up in our program, day three of the campaign saw the leaders making announcements about cell phone bills, small business and transit. The Conservative leader faces fallout over his debate comments last night about Indigenous communities, while the Prime Minister faces continuing questions about the SNC-Lavalin affair. And we'll drill down on immigration. That's a key concern for voters in this election. But let's begin with our day three campaign primer. Today, the leaders were rolling out policy announcements. Campaigning in Trois-Rivières, Quebec today, Justin Trudeau stopped at an electric car dealership where he promised to help small business owners get started and expand by cutting fees and red tape and promising to launch a pilot project to eventually provide as many as 2,000 entrepreneurs a year with up to $50,000 to get started. The Liberals are also promising to eliminate the so-called swipe fees on sales taxes that merchants pay to credit card companies every time there's a transaction. We're helping business owners reach new heights while making sure they continue to create good jobs for Canadians and grow our economy. <laughs> the Prime Minister continues to face questions about Quebec's Bill 21, banning public servants in positions of authority from wearing religious symbols. He's keeping open the possibility of joining a court challenge against the law at some point. We're not going to close the door on intervening at a later date because I think it would be irresponsible for a federal government uh, to close the door to intervention ever uh, on a matter that does touch fundamental freedoms. Oh, there he is. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer campaigned in Mississauga, Ontario, promising a Conservative government would reintroduce a Harper-era transit tax credit, cancelled by the Liberals, of 15% on the cost of transit passes. Scheer says that would save a Toronto-area family of four, as an example, $1,000 a year. It is also going to make it uh, more attractive to use public transit rather than taking someone's car. So if someone is you know, uh, right on the edge of whether or not deciding whether or not it would be more affordable to take public transit. This type of measure will help those people make those choices. Andrew Shears facing a backlash today for expressing concerns in last night's leaders' debate that the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples would allow one Indigenous community to hold hostage large projects that employ so many Indigenous Canadians. His opponents seized on the use of the word hostage. It demeans people who are were concerned about the land that they were the first defenders of. It is, it is inflammatory because it incites hatred towards people, saying that they're, they're holding up something hostage. Well, I deplore the, uh, the, the perspective and the language uh, that he used. And when you see those First Nations communities so frustrated that those projects are not able to proceed uh, because a, a, small group of, uh, a small group of people or other Indigenous communities are holding up those projects, uh, I sense that frustration. I share that frustration. <laughs> NDP leader Jagmeet Singh was on the campaign trail today in Toronto where he promised to cap cell phone and internet bills, which he said would save Canadian families an average of $250 a year. It can be done. It's been done in other jurisdictions. It's just a question of choices. Do we continue to choose governments, liberals and conservatives, that 
make life easier for the powerful and the wealthy, or do you choose new Democrats who are going to fight for you and your families? And that's the kind of day it's been. Day three of the federal election campaign. <laughs> well, let's discuss the latest developments in the campaign with four candidates. Chris Rogers is the Liberal candidate in the riding of Carleton in suburban Ottawa. Randy Hoback is the candidate for the Conservative Party in the riding of Prince Albert in Saskatchewan. He joins us from there today. Angela McEwen is the NDP candidate in Ottawa West Nepean. And Jean-Luc Cook is the Green Party candidate in the riding of of Nepeans. Good to see you all. Thanks for being here. Thank uh, all of the parties talking about pocketbook issues today. So let's start there. We've, we've had an announcement today uh, about uh, transit tax credit from the Conservatives. We had an announcement about capping cell phone rates, some, some measures for small business. So let's start there. What's your party doing to ease some of these affordability concerns for Canadians? Mr. Rogers, let me start with you. Absolutely. Well, I think uh, what we're doing, uh, the Liberal Party, is very much a continuation of what we've been doing for the past four years. So uh, we reduced income tax for the middle class. That was one of the very first things that we did. We also reduced uh, small business tax. Today we had an announcement uh, where we're going to help businesses uh, thrive today. Uh, we're eliminating the swiping fee. So when uh, a purchase is made with a credit card, uh, mm -hmm. there will be no fee on the GST or HST on that. And we're also uh, helping new businesses grow by uh, making uh, available for up to 2,000 entrepreneurs every year, uh, up to $50,000 in capital to help folks get into business and support uh, entrepreneurs. All right, Mr. Holbach, let me go to you. What's, what's the Conservative Party promising in this campaign that makes life more affordable for Canadians? Well, you know, that's our whole model is to help you get uh, get ahead. And, you know, I think people are expressing that over the last four years that even though the economy supposedly is doing well, when you look out here, it's not. Uh, they're saying we're getting left behind, and they, we're looking at things that we can do to actually help it make more affordable. So whether it's uh, uh, the, the couple that goes on maternity leave, they don't have to pay income tax and their paternity benefits, or taking the GST off home heating, or like today, we announced the the uh, tax credit for uh, transit. You know, those are things that will actually save people money and help them get ahead. Those are the types of things you'll see announced from the Conservative Party over the next uh, three weeks. Angela McEwen, what about the NDP? Well, the problem with the Liberals' middle class tax cut is that it didn't actually help anybody in the middle class. You only got the tax benefit if you were making more than $45,000 a year. And the median wage for people is in the $30,000 a year. So you are well in the top 20% if you were getting the uh, max return from that middle class tax cut. So it's not middle class. And the, what the uh, Conservatives plan to do is they'll cut our taxes, but then they'll cut our services too. And when you're, you're cutting the tax on, say, maternity benefits, same thing applies where if you're getting the full maternity benefits, um, you're already kind of doing fairly well. And so you're missing a whole chunk of people um, that are worse off than that, that you're not helping with these kind of targeted approaches. So what the NDP is talking about doing is actually making life more affordable. We've talked about building 500,000 more units of affordable housing. We need more non-market housing because that's the biggest problem I hear when I talk to people at the door. We are capping cell phone rates and internet rates because if you go, if you're in Saskatchewan where Randy Hoback is, there's SaskTel, which is a Crown Corporation, which um, actually has service as its primary goal, not profit. And so cell phone bills and internet is much cheaper there because there's competition in the market. Right. And finally, we're going to get rid of interest on student loans because I think that makes a bigger difference for people being able to start and be entrepreneurs if they're not weighed down by student loans. Mr. Cook, a lot of people have heard what the Green Party stands for on, on issues of climate change and mm -hmm. so on. Lots of people asking more questions now about economic policy. What are you doing to make life more affordable for Canadians? Uh, 
Well, well I'll, I'll start at the part of society that's at the bottom of, of the income scale. Uh, the Green Party wants to bring out a uh, basic annual income uh, that'll cover people in the lowest levels of, uh, of, of income, of wealth, uh, but also uh, to raise the minimum personal exemption on your income taxes. It doesn't make any sense that someone living below the poverty line is paying income taxes only to have the, the, those funds returned back to them in services, in additional services on top of that. It's far more efficient to let the, let the money stay in their pockets. Um, the announcement today about small business, uh, about the swipe fees on credit card, this is, we're talking about 13% on a 2% charge on credit cards. I don't think that's going to tip the scales on small business. When I uh, talk well, to small businesses have been asking for it for, for months and months, and they, they talk about, what is it, say, I think $500 million it'll save for small business. Sure. I, I, at the door, when I meet small business owners in Barhaven, uh, they tell me their main burden isn't necessarily the tax rate. They want to keep the tax rate where it is. Their main burden is actually regulatory burden. Um, everything from doing duplicative uh, tax filings um, and other forms of red tapes. The Green Party is going to be uh, simplifying that a lot for small business. Okay. Go ahead, I, I was just going to add, you know, our plan to support small business is very much in line with our, with our plan to support the middle class in general. Uh, that's why when you, look at, a lot of out. when you look at the Canada Child Benefit, that was more money for 9 out of 10 families and it was tax free. We've also provided more support for the lowest income seniors and enhanced the Canada Pension Plan. These are things that support all Canadians and uh, we're very proud of those things. Let me hear you, Mr. I think a lot of people are saying, okay, you say you're going to do this, but you said in the last election you're going to balance the budget in four years and you're going to just have a small deficit. How can we even trust what you say? And I think Canadians are looking at the Liberal Party and saying, we don't trust you. You're unethical. You've lied in the past. You haven't kept your promises. So why today should I trust you? And the reality is they can't. The only person they can trust to lead this country in the right direction is Andrew Scheer and the Conservative Party. And that's why we're seeing droves of people coming to our party. Uh, over the last couple weeks. Let me turn our conversation to the debate last night, as the, some of those issues around the economy were raised in the debate last night. Uh, let me ask you, um, Mr. Rogers, let me go back to you quickly on this and, and ask you, the Prime Minister wasn't there. Uh, he was the one leader that, of the parties represented here that wasn't at the debate last night. What, do you wish he had been there, and, and what, do you think it, it does him any damage that he wasn't? The Prime Minister uh, spent yesterday speaking to Canadians in, uh, in Victoria and Edmonton. Um, he's looking forward to, as we all are looking forward to speaking to, with as many Canadians as possible. And we're already doing that. And over the next 30-some uh, days, we're going to continue to speak to as many people as possible and to deliver our message. All right, so you don't think ways. he lost anything by not being at the debate? Absolutely not. Uh, Angela McEwen? It would be really disappointing if he didn't lose anything from not going to the debate. I think that voters were paying attention. I think they noticed the empty podium. I think that they feel like he's disrespecting them by not showing up. I think Jagmeet Singh showed us what it looks like to show up and to fight for Canadians. And that Trudeau um, kind of, that was a, a real opportunity for him to show up even though he didn't have to and he let it go. A lot of people talk about the uh, the battle for third place with Greens and New Democrats. Uh, do you think, what did you think of Mr. Singh's performance in the context of if there's a fight between Elizabeth May and, and Jagmeet Singh, uh, how did that change last night? Um, well, for, first I'll mention about Justin Trudeau not being in the debates. In 2015, um, he made a lot of hay on Stephen Harper skipping out on debates. And this time around, he decided to skip out on one of the debates and keep Elizabeth May out of another one in Quebec uh, in the French language debates with TVA. So I think when people compare Justin Trudeau 2015, Justin Trudeau 2019, um, they, they see an inconsistency. Uh, what they did see with Elizabeth May and, and Jagmeet Singh, I believe, is actually consistency. Um, Elizabeth May is a known 
quantity, she's a known product, and I think that is why a lot of voters um, are starting to support the Green Party in that regards. Now, as for Jagmeet Singh's performance last night, um, I think he did a lot of uh, very standard things in debates extremely well. Um, referring back to personal anecdotes, uh, I know so-and-so who is but in this he, but situation. He but he took on Elizabeth May almost more than anybody else. He, he, he really wanted well, to challenge some of Elizabeth May's positions on things, and it, it, there was some... I, I, I would say that some of the things he said were delusional to the point of fantasy. Uh, to, to categorize Elizabeth May as someone who is anti-choice on abortion is ludicrous. Accurate based on her past position? Incorrect. All right, uh, Mr. Holbach, listen, I, I want to look at a clip, I, bring you in here. I want to look at a clip last night from the debate. And this is, uh, there's some pushback today for your leader, Mr. Scheer, on some of the comments he made using the word hostage in terms of describing Indigenous communities who might want to hold up projects. Uh, um, and he was raising concerns about that in the context of what that means for jobs for other people in Indigenous communities. Let's listen to that clip and then I'll come back to you. We cannot create a, a system in this country where one group of indivi individuals, one Indigenous community, can hold hostage large projects that employ so many Indigenous Canadians. And first of all, you use language like hold hostage. I mean, that's just incredibly disrespectful off the well, top. You tell that to language what you are using, if Andrew, one shows Indigenous no community says no? So, Mr. Hoback, today Andrew Shear is not backing down on that. He's, he's standing by the concerns he raised. Um, are, is that appropriate language to use to describe uh, people who, indigenous communities who oppose an energy project as holding it hostage? But, you know, legitimate concerns being raised by constituents all across Canada in regards to getting projects built and done. Reality is what he's expressing, I think, was what he's hearing from people on the ground here in Canada. You know, when we see things like pipelines being held up by one group or one other group, when it's in the best interest of all of Canada and First Nations right across Canada, and we see one group holding it up, well, that's a problem. So, no, you can't give them a veto. You have to have a system in place that, yes, you hear all the concerns, you take and do everything you can to mitigate any type of risks that may be associated with this project that you're building and the mine that you're building, but then you still have to be able to move forward. You can't just let one group stop the, pro the progress that's required. And I think the other thing he's expressing better, relatively clearly, if you look at Northern Saskatchewan, if you look at Chemical, the uranium mine, the number of First Nations that are employed in that mine is phenomenal. And if it wasn't there, they would be unemployed. There wouldn't be a lot of work up in that region. So if you can't let projects like that move forward, well, then what are these folks supposed to do? What type of jobs would they have? How do they raise their family? How do they have a good quality of life? So he's just expressing that in a way that constituents express it right across Canada. All right, let me hear from the others at the table here. What did you think of what you heard last night? Well, I think what we're seeing is, is really uh, a choice. There's an adversarial approach that we've seen with the Ford government in Ontario, we saw through the Harper years. And in 2015, Canadians rejected that. They chose a positive plan for the future where we invest in Canadians, where we invest in, in the middle class. And that's what I think uh, is on the table for, for 2019. And that's what we're talking about. You know, when I'm, when I'm on the doors, people want to talk about affordability. Hang, hang on, Mr. Robert. So Angela McKeon, go ahead. Right. And I think that that was actually a good example of the Green Party and the NDP having a similar position on an issue. I think we do overlap and agree on a lot of things. Um, and one of those things is that neither the Conservatives or the Liberals have a good position on this. In order for there to be consent, there has to be a possibility that the answer is no, mm -hmm. right? And so if we're talking about free prior informed consents, if we're talking about the rights of Indigenous people and fully including them in these decision making... But that I was the conversation last know, night, right? So exactly. It, it, so those communities know what, what whether if, or not it's good for what their if community there's or not. Whether there's consent from some, even the majority of Indigenous communities along the way and not from others, it, does that mean the project shouldn't go ahead? That's correct, yeah. yes. Right. Because, I mean, that's, that's what it means. Right, Mr. Cook? Justin Trudeau was asked in 2015, 
if, if a First Nation does not want a project to go forward, is that a veto? And he said, absolutely. He's changing his tune uh, once again. And I do agree, the NDP and the Greens are 100% on this. Indigenous people and the nations are not a constituency. They are another nation. And in a nation-nation relationship, we have to treat it that way. If someone wants to build a road through my backyard and they have to ask for my consent, they don't go ahead and ask my wife because they know I'm going to say no. If I say no, then they can't build it through, and that's just it. Right. And if a developer yeah. wants to build a building, Everybody on the block has to agree that they're going to sell their house. All right, Mr. Mr. Holbach, I know you wanted to quickly end. One quick comment here, and we got to go. Well, you know, again, it comes back to in this campaign, what here on the ground is very, very clear. Uh, they can't trust this prime minister. He's proven to us to be unethical. Is this the type of person we want to see on the international stage representing Canada? You know, he's been known to lie in the past. The SNC Lavin affair is a classic example of that. We were seeing so many times where this prime minister has gone and. Uh, and embarrass us on the international stage. And those things are now really, really affecting people's decision on how they're going to vote this election. We'll have to, we'll have to leave we'll have to leave it at that. Uh, we'll, we'll have a chance to chat again, I'm sure. But th <laughs> thank you all for your time today. Good thank to see you, you all. Take thank care. You, and good luck to all of you. Bye now. Well, let's take a closer look at the measures for small businesses being promised by the Liberal Party today. Dan Kelly is the head of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Uh, Dan Kelly, good to see you again. Happy to be here. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what Jagmeet Singh was saying today as well about uh, his economic vision, how that might affect small business in this country. But let's start with what Justin Trudeau is talking about today. What do you think of these promises he's made for small business? Well, it's a pretty big one. Uh, in fact, it's borrowed right from CFIB's re-election platform that we put before all political parties, so I give the Liberals credit uh, for adopting this measure. Uh, this is going to remove sales taxes, uh, sorry, remove the uh, embedded merchant fees on sales taxes, GST, HST. Right now, we estimate about $500 million a year is assessed on top of the sales taxes that merchants are expected to collect from consumers, and they have to eat that cost. A half a billion comes out of the pockets of merchants. Uh, in just on the sales tax portion, not on the actual good or the service. Uh, right now, the federal government is, uh, and the Liberal Party is, is specifically promising to prohibit uh, sales taxes, uh, sorry, fees on these sales taxes, and that's good news from our perspective. Uh, we've been lobbying for this for years and years. And, and what about this notion that, uh, or, or this promise uh, to uh, run this pilot project to, to essentially provide $50,000 to uh, small business entrepreneurs to get them started. They're going to start it as a as a pilot project. And have you been asking for that too? What do you think of that? You know that that is a little bit different than I would say that is is our priority. We certainly want the government to lower costs on entrepreneurs. The way to do that is to lower some of the taxes and charges that small businesses are facing, rather than essentially giving them grants or subsidy money at the end of the process when they're when they're trying to start out a business. Uh, so, you know, look, there, there are some of these programs are good, but we have we have honestly across Canada, probably a thousand different business support programs like this, most of them not doing very much. Most of the most entrepreneurs wouldn't even know about if it hit them in the face. So that's not probably the right direction, not strong opposition to it. But uh, but we like many of the other measures, uh, including one where they're going to be talking about automating records of employment. That's a big one. That's a huge paper uh, paperweight, uh, a paper burden on small and medium-sized firms, uh, and we're very happy that the Liberals have announced some measures on that. So tell me how. So what 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 would that change me mean for small business owners? Well, right now, if you're running a small business and you have an employee, 
they leave, they quit, or they're fired, uh, or they're on a leave. You have to provide them with a written record of employment, submit their hours in a certain fashion to the government to let them know how much they've been paid uh, in this period of time. It bears no resemblance to the way that businesses actually pay employees. It's a, it's a, it's a government methodology. And what they're talking about is automating that, allow businesses to provide the information uh, more seamlessly uh, so, that, so that they can take out this paper, paper step that they currently have to do. That is a big one. It's one of the top irritants, red tape irritants, for small and medium-sized firms across Canada. And it's good on the, on the federal Liberals for announcing some measures to address it. Okay, you talked about how there are a certain number of business support programs from governments in place that a lot of business owners don't even know about and, and maybe aren't really working. Uh, they've announced something else today, $250 subsidy to expand online services for small businesses. Are you saying that that's probably not the way to go either? Well, look, that one, broad-based uh, items that, that, can, that can be accessed by all firms certainly are better than firms that, that only apply to a few thousand businesses a year. Uh, even as test projects, I've got to say that, you know, there's winners and losers. Government's not particularly good at, at, at incenting the right companies. So we, we don't mind that measure, I, I would say, overall. It remains to be seen as to how it would be implemented. If you're trying to get your business online, you're trying to set up an e-commerce website. There are companies uh, like Shopify, smaller players as well. They can help you do that. Whether the 250 bucks is going to be enough to uh, to incent you to go down that road, I'm not certain. Uh, not a bad idea, but the the big measures on the records of employment and the and the credit card processing fees on on sales taxes, those are huge. Those are things that merchants have, small businesses have been asking for, and and I'm 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 pleased to see that. Liberal Party very early in the campaign is out with some commitments on small business. They need to be there because, of course, there are a lot of small business owners that are still very upset with them uh, based on the 2017 tax changes. Right, fair enough. Which which leads me to this question: Are you skeptical that they're they're answering the concerns you've been raising for a long time during an election campaign? Well, look, we we like to hold parties accountable. We're doing pre-election surveys. I've met with party leaders, including Jagmeet Singh and, and Andrew Scheer recently. The reason we do this is that we try to get promises from, from the parties and then use those written promises to hold them accountable after the election. The Liberals, though, have broken several big promises from their 2015 platform that have yet to be implemented. Uh, these are big ones. I'm hoping that they will go forward should the government be re-elected. Re uh, we heard from the NDP leader today, Jagmeet Singh. He's talking about uh, higher taxes on corporations and talking about a, a living wage uh, within four years of a, an NDP mandate, a federally mandated wage across the country of 21 or 22 dollars an hour. What's your view on that? Well, the NDP over the last over the last few years has announced some some very small business friendly policies. That wouldn't be among them. Uh, a, a giant increase in the minimum wage, a new federal minimum wage, would not be something small businesses would welcome. The, the NDP is talking about uh, assessing that on federally regulated firms. That wouldn't affect a huge number of very small firms. But if that was expanded by provincial governments, picked up where there's a $15 an hour or $20 or $21 an hour minimum wage or living wage, uh, and that, that happens provincially, that's where the rubber hits the road. And a lot of small firms would be sideswiped uh, very quickly by that. Uh, Minimum wage policy is a tricky one. Uh, yes, there, there are just not a lot of people that are trying to make ends meet on a minimum wage job, but there are a lot of students and people trying to get their foot in the door of the labor force that do depend on those jobs, and we've got to make sure that we don't dry up their opportunities. 
All right, Dan Kelly, uh, good to hear from you today. Uh, we'll talk again. Anytime. I will highlight that we're not going to close the door on intervening at a later date because I think it would be irresponsible for a federal government uh, to close the door to intervention ever uh, on a matter that does touch fundamental freedoms. Well, that was the Prime Minister being asked today about uh, what action he's prepared to take on Quebec's Bill 21, that bill that uh, bans religious symbols being worn by uh, people and public servants in Quebec in positions of authority. Uh, let's start our conversation there with two colleagues from the Parliamentary Press Gallery, Bob Fife, Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail, and Bruce Campion-Smith, the Parliamentary Reporter with the Toronto Star. Good to see you both. Okay. Thanks for being here. Uh, We've seen all the political leaders in this campaign saying that they, the major party leaders in this campaign saying that they, uh, they don't like Bill 21 at all. Uh, they abhor what it does uh, for the most part. Uh, those are the, not the Bloc Québécois, not Max Bernier, but, uh, but they're, they're reluctant to, it would seem, do much about it at this point. Certainly not join any court challenges against it. And the Prime Minister was saying the door remains open today. Um, what do we think of this in the context of the rest of the country? I, I know Quebec's had play here, but at some point, could this be a problem for the political parties in other parts of the country? Bob? Look, it's cowardice. That's what it is. The political leaders don't want to offend uh, Quebecers because this bill that discriminates against minorities would uh, could cost them votes in the election campaign. So none of them are going to stand up for the rights of people who might want to wear a, a hijab um, or a, a, a turban mm -hmm. um, because uh, they're more interested in getting votes uh, in Quebec. But I can tell you, you can almost be certain, Peter, if this was in Ontario or, or Saskatchewan or Alberta, they'd all be on their hind legs saying, we would intervene, we'll stop this. But because of Quebec and the fact that it's popular there and the Quebec Premier uh, is saying, I'll take you on on that, hmm. They're backing off like meek little mousies. What do you think, Bruce? And there's no—he's getting asked about it almost daily. I mean, of course, if he's in Quebec, he's going to get asked about it. I'll, I'll, I'm not sure whether it follows him to other parts of the country, and we'll see as the campaign goes on. But what, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think that that's the test. I think because it's not following them outside of Quebec, that's probably why they're allowed to get away with this kind of position. You know, we, we saw kind of the range of positions. Mr. Singh was most passionate, which is understandable as a Sikh man. And then the rest of them, you know, and then at the other end of the spectrum, Mr. Shear was you know, hands off. You know, he didn't really want to comment, only said that we would not enact a similar policy at the federal level. I think, you know, their saving grace is that they have no one in their midst, you know, taking the opposing view, arguing for strong federal action on this to, to you know, to intervene. So they can, you know, they're, they're going to get away with it. It'll be interesting to see how the positions evolve, if at all, you know, as, as the questions continue on the campaign. To, to the point, is, is Elizabeth May, I think, to the point where well, well, the, the suggestion... She's a jaw-dropper, I mean, Elizabeth May. <laughs> hey, you know what? You if they lose your their job, job you can't and they... get a job, we'll try to help you get a job somewhere else in Ontario or not. Can you imagine? Mm -hmm. Talk about leadership. I mean, this is an issue of fundamental human rights. Are you able to wear what you want to be able to wear, mm -hmm. particularly if it's a religious symbol for you, uh, and we do have freedom of religion in this country, or is it not? And her view is, well, I'm not going to, I don't want to annoy anybody in Quebec, so eh, I don't like it, but we'll I'll find, find a job, job in somewhere the public else. In the federal yeah. service right. if you lose it in the, right. in the, in the Quebec service. Okay, uh, I want to get to last night's debate and, and SNC-Lavalin in a moment. What are your thoughts on uh, the first three days of the campaign? Anything stand out? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, certainly uh, Mr. Singh, Jagmeet Singh, came into the campaign with a big question mark over his leadership. You know, he had not really inspired 
uh, in the time during his time in Ottawa, and that seemed to change with the, the election kickoff. You know, I think he surpassed expectations. Uh, you know, he's been sort of good on his feet, and we saw that last night in the debate. He was passionate, was able to, to lay out some, you know, the NDP policies in a number of areas, and 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 was good in his sort of toing and froing with uh, with Mr. Shear and Ms. May. What do you think, Bob? Yeah, I think that, uh, not surprisingly, uh, you know, often people, when you have low expectations, they, there's only one way to do is go up. And, and Mr. Singh has uh, shown that he's, he's much better at being a politician than we originally thought. But I, there hasn't been any sort of real issue that sort of galvanized the public. And um, I, it's kind of a, right now, it feels like a sleepy campaign to me. Um, but, you know, look, it's only three days into the campaign, and even though they've been campaigning for months, Peter, I, I feel that, you know, there isn't something that's really galvanized voters. Is it climate change? Is it social issues? Is yeah. it s yeah, None I mean, of these things it, seem to be yeah, getting people, you know? You know? And, and some of those things are fairly, are fairly close in terms of priorities. When you look at affordability, climate change, and climate change is sort of, sort of playing a larger role, it would seem, in the campaign. but. Uh, not sure where where ethics will end up at the end of the day, and where. Uh, but let's talk about SNC Lavalin because we have the prime minister keeps getting asked about that too, uh, and his position is that you know it's uh, basically the chief public servant in the land, the clerk of the privy council is the one who made the made the call on no waivers for uh, the witnesses that the cabinet witnesses that need to be interviewed or want to be RCMP wants to interview them and they can't because of the, the cabinet waiver. And, uh, you've both been writing about this, and uh, what about that argument that well, if the Justin Trudeau wanted to waive it, could he? Yeah, the, the prime minister isn't being truthful with the Canadians by saying that the decision not to waive cabinet confidentiality so the RCMP can talk to witnesses and to get cabinet documents is the decision of the clerk of the Privy Council. That is not true. The clerk of the Privy Council is since 1957 is considered to be the custodian of cabinet secrets. Their job is not to release information. It is the role of the cabinet and the prime minister to waive cabinet confidentiality. And every expert we've talked to, from Donald Savoy, who you know is uh, an expert on, on government, to academics, to Justice John, John Gomery. Gomery, of all people, who's pretty blunt speaking, and who said, now, that's a political decision. Everybody knows that. And all the precedent shows that. Uh, in every case where we've seen back in the Maroony days uh, when there have been criminal investigations, it's been the prime minister who waives cabinet confidentiality. It's the prime minister who waives ca cabinet confidentiality in terms of the Oliphant inquiry, the Gomery inquiry, the RCMP inquiry. Um, so all of these things are a decision of the prime minister and nobody else. Does it become a vote mover at some point, uh, Bruce? Or I think it does because it's it's not going away, you know. And, and this this issue is already hanging over. They raise questions of ethics. Now we have the optic of the prime minister uh, actively blocking investigations, and this dates back to the the you know the ethics commissioner when he was in his investigation. He details that in his report how he himself made a personal appeal to the prime minister that you know to lift the, you know the waiver the existing waiver didn't go far enough. I need access to this these people. So you know the prime minister is not ignorant to these uh, concerns. Um, and so, you know, as Bob noted, you know, the, the, the clerk is his default is secrecy. So it's the prime minister's role to come in and say, you know, take what you need. Um, you know, we're, we're, this is going to be open and accessible. Uh, what changes, Bob? Um, and the Globe and Mail keeps, you know, uh, turning its stories on this, and Bruce are writing about it too. I mean, what, what, 
the prime minister is going to continue this defense until he can't continue the defense. But, but he gets very so short answers. We've and, given the largest waiver right, ever. Which is not true. Yeah. Uh, but by the way, that's not true yeah. either. The largest waiver was, was the Gomery inquiry. Mm -hmm. With Paul um, Martin. Yeah. So he's not being truthful in that, but he's hoping that, um, that the, his short answers and misleading answers will be enough to sort of put this behind him and the reporters will forget about it and jump on the other issues. But fundamentally we have here is the what is the Prime Minister hiding? Because the RCMP want to know whether there's enough evidence for obstruction of justice. That means at the highest levels of this government, did the Prime Minister and his top aides obstruct justice to help SNC-Lavalin? And, and I, to me, I don't think that the, he should be allowed to get away with this. Bruce, quick final thought from you. Uh, well, I think he's clearly he's decided on a tactic to to you know just drag this out and and blunt it and and sort of throw you know he gets asked about the waiver he talks about jobs and so you know he's he's going to just carry that on so you know it it, it you know it may work for him I hope it doesn't. All right, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you're going to hear a lot, of course, about the big issues that uh, voters say are helping to drive their votes in, in the election campaign and at the ballot box on October 21st. But there's a lot of numbers behind uh, what Canadians are thinking, and numbers matter in a campaign, the, the parties poll, uh, individual uh, firms poll. And so we're going to try and make some sense over all these uh, of these polling numbers over the course of the campaign. To do that, we're going to be joined regularly by David Coletto, the CEO of Abacus Data, who's uh, a polling firm, of course, doing polling of his own. But he's also going to be here on a regular basis to help us understand not just his results, but results from other polling firms as well. What are we driving for here? Well, I think the, the, the main goal is make sense of a lot of the noise that's going to be out there. Lots of polls are going to be released uh, between now and Election Day. And so our own data plus all the other pollsters I would come and, and try to set, tell you, obviously, what the horse race is, who's ahead, who's behind. But maybe even more important, I think, is what impact is the campaign having, it, having on, on voters' perceptions of the parties, their impressions of the leaders, and are they reacting to different events as the campaign happens? That's really going to be what I hope to, to bring today. All to right, this. and we're looking forward to it. And we're going to dig into some information now. We're going to focus our conversation in just a few moments here on the issue of immigration. We're going to hear right. a lot about that. Could end up being a very divisive issue in this campaign, depending on how the politicians handle it. Mm -hmm. And they might handle it depending on what they know Canadians are thinking, right? right. And that's always, always the case for some of these issues. Uh, so we're going to get down uh, to the immigration issue in just a moment, but we want to put that in the context of what key issues are for Canadians as we head into this campaign. So let's run through the list yeah. of what you've found is really the sort of top issues that will help drive the vote in this campaign. Yeah, and we regularly ask voters in the surveys that we do what issues matter to them. In this case, we asked what are the top five issues that are going to be the most important in deciding your vote? And so if we go down this list, uh, the cost of living is the top issue. More people, 55%, picked it than any other issue, uh, followed by health care at 42%. Climate change in the environment um, scales up high uh, in this election, higher than I think we've ever seen. Uh, taxes at four, fourth at 38%. And then if you look at the other issues, uh, the economy, poverty and inequality, housing, what we'll talk about, immigration, refugee policies makes the top list government spending and deficits, and then uh, costs and availability of medicine. So these are what I call tier one issues. We asked people, we had a much longer list, and these were the ones in which at least one out of four Canadians put a check mark. So. All right, so let's, let's drill down now on some of the findings on, on issues around immigration. And we're going to hear a lot about it in the campaign, as I said. We're going to hear 
parties say we need more immigration. We're going to hear parties say we need less immigration. There's going to be a big conversation around what immigration does for the country or yeah. what it might do to detract from the country. So let's let's start there. Uh, you went in, you, you wanted to find out, okay, what do people feel about immigration? Is it good for Canada, bad for Canada? And, we, and, and frankly, we, we simplified it. It's, it's a much more complex issue than we made it out to be. But we asked people, which of these two statements comes closest to your view that immigrants today strengthen our country because of their hard work and talents and they make our, uh, you know, our society more diverse and interesting or do you take the view that immigrants are more likely to be a burden on our country that they take jobs they housing health care and they are too different from the people who live here now and what we find is the majority of Canadians fall in the immigration is, is generally good 61 percent uh, but I think I'm oft, people are often surprised when I share these results that 39% have the other view, that, right. that perhaps immigration is a burden. And, and we always sometimes feel Canada is the exception to the rule that we're seeing around the world, where if you look at Europe and sort of the influx of, of refugees and, and immigrants has sort of created some populist yeah. Yeah, Tolerance uh, is being strained in some and, of those Yeah, countries. and the United States in the same story, Canada is not immune to this, right? The same forces are at work. But what's interesting and is when we look at it by party. Let's do that. And you mentioned at the start this is a divisive issue, and it is. It's one of the most politicized issues. Conservative supporters, uh, you can see here, are the most likely um, of the four main parties. If you put the People's Party in the mix, they're the most likely to think that uh, immigrants are a burden. But conservatives are basically split. Mm -hmm. Half the conservative voter base thinks immigration is generally a good thing. Half are concerned about the burden that it has on the country. That's less so among the other parties, among, particularly among the Liberal Party, it's pretty m close to a consensus that immigration is a good thing. The, the reason this issue is so divisive, though, is because it's more salient among certain voters. And the, I think the dilemma that the Conservatives and Andrew Scheer face is that, on the one hand, their voters are much more likely to even rank immigration as a top issue than Liberals or New Democrats, and you can see how mixed their views are. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he wants to make sure he's responsive to his voters and, and gets them motivated, especially when you've got Max Bernier uh, talking about this issue and, and talking about it quite prominently. But on the other hand, he, he needs to still grow uh, the base, and, and a lot of his own supporters uh, think immigration is a good thing for whether it's economic or ethical or moral reasons uh, is beside the point. They, they think it is. Okay, let's go to this, this next board where you, you uh, put it in the context of views on immigration by economic evaluations. What, what does this mean and what do we see? Well, what we did here is it shows there's a relationship. So the way to read this is those who describe the Canadian economy as poor, um, which in our survey was about 30% of Canadians, you can see that almost two-thirds think that immigration is a burden. So if you are feeling less optimistic or positive about the economy, um, you are also more likely to think that we shouldn't allow more immigrants in or that they're a burden. Yeah, you're, you've, you've connected those two things. The There's a relationship. It's not necessarily causal, right. but you, you may be seeing a relationship between, well, if I can't find a job or our hospitals are filled or I can't find good housing because the economy uh, is not going well, I've got to, I, I blame someone right. and I look and often immigrants are, are, and it has been through history, sort of that source of blame. But the flip side is true. If you are more optimistic about the economy, if you're feeling good about where things are going, you are more likely to think immigration uh, is a good thing. And as many economists say, we need actually more immigrants. 
for economic growth, and so you probably uh, aligns closer with that. So there is a relationship between um, how you view the economy and, and your views on immigration. And then you, uh, you uh, dug down on the issue of you know, which party has the best approach to immigration. What do we see there? Yeah, and again, this is among people who care about this issue. So that 25%, uh, the Conservatives have a clear lead. 37% of those who care about it think the Conservatives have the best approach. Uh, the Liberals are in second at 15 and the NDP at 8%. Uh, a smaller number than some of the other issues we've looked at say unsure. Interestingly, 11% of Canadians say none of the above, which to me is a signal why perhaps Max Bernier is making this an issue, that there, there's, there's perhaps a, there's, there's a small minority there's some of Canadians kind of an audience there for yeah, who says, well, all the mainstream parties have the same view on this. There's a consensus about immigration. Because Andrew Scheer is being fairly clear. He supports right. immigration. Um, and, and so that, that leaves an opening, perhaps, for someone else. And I think Max Bernier is rushing in to try to fill it. We'll, he'll see whether he can connect with those voters. Um, but, but it is an issue right now that is much more animating the, the right side of the political spectrum than the left. We'll see if it becomes a, a real prominent issue in this campaign. All right, David Coletto, once again, thanks. Thanks, Peter. Each fall, Canada's immigration minister sets targets for the coming years. Those overall targets are broken down into three main categories. Economic immigrants, family class immigrants, and refugees and other protected persons. Let's take 2017 as an example. That year, Canada took in more than 286,000 newcomers. More than half were economic immigrants. That includes skilled workers and business people, along with their spouse and dependents. 29% were family class immigrants, including spouses and children, as well as parents and grandparents. Finally, 15% were refugees and others in need of protection. This year, the government plans to admit close to 331,000 newcomers. That number will climb to 341,000 next year, up to 350,000 in 2021. And immigration does play a crucial role in fueling this country's growth. Just last year, new immigrants accounted for a record 80% of population growth. And in recent years, immigration has driven as much as 90% of the growth in Canada's labour force. Well, when it comes to immigration, the major political parties in this country all favour immigration levels at or higher than the current levels, and they all favour economic immigration, although there are differences on how the immigration system should be administered. Now, the upstart People's Party of Canada favours an end to what it calls mass immigration and pledges to cut immigration by more than half if it forms government. So let's talk about immigration and the role it might play in this election and in the debate over Canada's long-term prosperity. Joining me now from Toronto is Jasmine Gill. She's the Director of Policy and Programs with the Century Initiative, a group that argues Canada should grow its population to 100 million by the year uh, 2100 by relying on increased immigration, or at least in a major part. And joining me from Vancouver is David Green, professor at the Vancouver School of Economics with the University of British Columbia, who warns a big jump in immigration is not a good idea and not warranted. Thank you both for uh, being here to talk about this. And Jasmine Gill, if I can, let me start with you. Uh, your organization, the Century Initiative, is recommending a, a dramatic increase in the number of immigrants coming to Canada so we can reach a population, as I said, of 100 million by the end of the century. What's at stake if we don't? 
Well, um, the initiative was born out of exactly that. We were looking at the fact that Canada's population is getting older. We are aging. Our fertility rate is quite low. It's at 1.54. A replacement level is 2.1. We're also uh, sensitive to the labor market shortages that we face today and will continue to face over the decades to come. Currently, there are 500,000 uh, jobs that are unfilled. Um, we expect over the course of the 2020s for 270,000 people to leave the labor force annually. That's 5,000 per week. Um, and, uh, and, the, and the Conference Board of Canada has stated that they expect uh, there to be a million unfilled jobs by 2020. So looking at that, understanding that our population is aging, mm -hmm. uh, knowing that the result of that will be labour market shortages, as well as rising health care costs and old age spending, um, forces us into, to really consider seriously how, how uh, ambitious are we in growing the scale of our population. And so Century Initiative came together around the idea that we need to be uh, a bit more ambitious in, in achieving higher population growth, not only today and over the next couple of decades or over the course of my lifetime or your lifetime, right. but over the course of the entire century. Okay, David, it's hard to imagine that a whole lot of Canadians would, would want uh, poorer health care or smaller pensions if we can't afford to pay for those programs. Uh, what's your take on what the Century Initiative is proposing? Do we need uh, steadily higher levels of immigration to maintain or expand our wealth in this country? Uh, I would say that the evidence that we have to this point wouldn't support that that claim. And uh, I think the easiest place to look is in a set of recent reports from the conference board, actually. So the, the conference board is fairly supportive of the Century Initiative uh, outlook. But if you look carefully at their numbers, what they're talking about is uh, some an important distinction between uh, growing GDP, that is economic growth, in terms of growing the whole pie versus GDP per capita. That What's is, the difference uh, there so people understand? Yeah, so the, the difference is really uh, that in, in thinking about GDP, we're thinking about the whole economic pie. How much are we producing in total? And when you're thinking about GDP per person or per capita, we're really talking about uh, how much does each person get? How much is sort of your average take-home income? If you increase immigration a lot, of course, you're going to increase the population and it actually stands to reason you're going to increase the size of the pie. We have more workers, we're going to produce more. The issue is that we're going to produce more, but we're also going to have more people asking for a share of the pie. So the, the real question is, what happens to uh, the share that each person gets? That is, does the, does the growth in population outstrip the growth in the total size of the pie? And what you find in the conference board's own numbers is that, in fact, GDP per capita grows less uh, with the big immigration kind of scenarios that we're talking about relative to maintaining the course on uh, the pop immigration policy as we have it now. So, and that, so are you saying we, we don't have a demographic time bomb to worry about? So uh, there's two different, there's sort of two different questions, I think. One is, do we have a demographic, do we have a time bomb, as you're putting it? And the second is, is immigration the solution to that? So the first is, uh, most Economists, all economists, view the economy not quite the same way a lot of other people do. So it's not a machine with missing cogs. So when you say, oh, I'm going to remove this many workers, you know, the, the, the principle sounds like, okay, the economy is going to come to a, to a halt. It's really an organic uh, hole where 
new effort and new workers are directed to where they're needed and new technologies are created as the scarcity evolves. So what will happen in response to more people retiring is not that the economy is going to break down, not that you look and say, oh, those five jobs are going to be empty, right. but rather that wages will adjust, they'll, they'll steer the workers towards where they're needed, we'll develop new technologies that work better when we have fewer workers, and essentially... Okay. The impact is not going to be a big negative time bomb. All right. Oh, okay. Jasmine, what's, what's your response to that? Well, on the first point uh, around GDP per capita, those forecasts are on the basis of an older population uh, in the labor force, so older workers earning higher incomes, as well as a low, lower share of uh, labor force participation on the basis that we have a smaller population. Both of those two factors will undermine Canada's economic growth over the course of the long term. So GDP per capita, I would suggest, is perhaps not the best measure to address some of the issues that David uh, mentioned, meaning are we sharing the benefits of growth uh, broadly um, and across uh, the but, entire you know, and spectrum I why, of the population. I guess why this is important. I don't want to get, you know I don't want to lose people too much in the numbers, <laughs> but 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 the but they're important to understand. Uh, or to try and find the answer to the, to, to the most basic question that people are confronted with. Do we need more immigrants in this country or not? And so th they're, 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 we kind of required to sort of know that to kind of answer that question. You're, you're saying the evidence is there, and David, you're saying it's not. Well, so, so let me go back to this question. So underlying, so the, the conference board's kind of study of GDP per capita, which says clearly that their conclusion is GDP per capita would be lower with the big increases in uh, immigration that we're talking about. But that's based ultimately on a, on a sort of deeper literature of people who really have their hands on the data. And in all of those studies, there's a remarkable consensus amongst economists, which, you know, as people know, is not a, not a standard thing. But there's a remarkable consensus amongst economists who study the data that if you increase immigration, wages don't change very much, employment rates don't change very much, and GDP per capita does not change very much in the medium to long run. In other words, the effect is neutral. And that is a very, very standard finding in the results. The, the debate amongst economists is actually between, is the effect sort of neutral or is it actually slightly negative? Yeah, what, what, do you think of, what do you think of that, Jasmine? So I would say that neutral um, is, uh, is the worst case scenario and that we can do even better if um, and and also a lot of those uh, projections are lacking a sensitivity analysis analysis in terms of what would um, occur on on softer factors like uh, private investment How, to what extent would that increase in scale such that we would gain in productivity and, uh, and enable greater G GDP growth so I, I I would just be a little bit cautious around the numbers and the assumptions uh, around that but even more so when looking at immigration levels I think there is a broad national consensus that immigration levels need to uh, increase. It's to what level it, uh, is the question. Um, from our perspective at Century Initiative, we are looking to achieve more ambitious 
growth levels. And that's on the basis that immigration is going to account for 100 percent of population growth in a short time. We're about a decade away um, in the 2030s, the early to mid-2030s, when immigration will account for 100 percent of let me, growth. Let me jump. You, I'll come back to you in a moment, David. You, you've talked about the uh, uh, Jasmine, you've talked about the consensus, that, that, but we've we've seen a lot, and you've seen them, surveys that show that a lot of Canadians feel there are already too many immigrants coming to this country. They're uncomfortable with it. If more immigration is essential, why are we seeing that kind of resistance? I think the reasons uh, could be um, several. Uh, one being that where there is economic stagnation or income inequality, um, threats of job loss, those issues can uh, trigger concerns around um, whether they're well-placed or not, around whether newcomers will actually take jobs away from Cana Canadians. We feel quite the opposite. Uh, immigrants are job creators. The more people we have in Canada, the better our chances are at achieving collective prosperity. David Green, given the concerns around immigration expressed by uh, a number of Canadians, uh, what are the risks of pushing ahead with higher immigration levels? So I, just to come back to the message again, the, 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 let me say again, uh, Jasmine was talking about, uh, you know, maybe there would, maybe immigration would lead to extra investment, would lead to extra growth. That's all taken into account when we look at the impact on GDP per capita. In other words, there is no evidence for big gains. Now, on the other hand, there's no evidence for big losses either. The notion that uh, immigration will dramatically lower wages or steal jobs, there's no evidence for that. And that means that the, the long-term, you know, sort of risks of expanding are not on the economic side. They might be, as you're pointing out, on the political side, but they're not on the economic side. And let me also say, there is this whole, there's sort of a myth that we need it, we need immigration for demographic reasons, that the, mm -hmm. the baby boom is going to get older, and uh, that's going to, you know, lead to much higher proportions of workers who are, say, over age 65, and immigration can undo that. If you talk to demographers, that's not true. And the reason is because immigra immigration is, immigrants are on average slightly younger, but immigration is, a, is scattered across the age range. People bring in their parents, and we want them to bring in their parents. We want them to be part of this economy and right. feel like their whole family is welcome. And because of that, you don't change the age structure that much. You might push down the proportion you're over age 65 by a point or two, but not by a lot more. This is not a panacea. It's also not you know, a gigantic time bomb, you know, danger that it's going to destroy jobs. Like I said, I think the, the issues are probably more on the on the political side than the economic side, but it's not some huge economic boom waiting for us. Jasmine, you want to weigh in on that? Well, that gets me to the issue of strategic population growth. So this um, initiative of ours, Century Initiative, our, our thinking is not that um, it's simply um, at the, in the worst uh, characterization, a call to casually open borders, or nor is it um, not thoughtful uh, planning. So the reason why we have this goal that spans over the next 81 years is so that we can come together across different dimensions of policy thinking and think through what it will take to not just achieve population growth, but successful population growth. And so for us, it means 
exactly um, what are the qualities and characteristics, the skills, the talents that Canada needs, how are those best complemented by uh, newcomers to this country, how can we better achieve um, greater economic outcomes for Canadians who are already living here, what, what, um, what do we need to do in terms of infrastructure and urban development to prepare our cities to accommodate population growth, are educational institutions equipped to raise the next generation? and the next few generations of uh, talented Canadians? Do we have the job opportunities um, that, that would lead to economic prosperity for everyone? And finally, early childhood support. All of these um, different areas are very much part of a virtuous cycle that will feed off of, it, of itself and allow for population growth to occur incrementally, as we suggest, over the next 81 years, in a way that leads to a thriving and successful and uh, prosperous population. All right, let's finish on this. David, uh, voters are going to hear a lot, I, I suspect, about immigration during this election campaign. Uh, the levels need to be higher. The levels need to be drastically cut from some parties. Uh, are you worried about how this issue will be handled by the politicians during the campaign, and, and what should voters think about it? Um, I guess I'm a little worried, but I have I have a fair amount of faith in in Canadians on this. I I don't think somebody could go hard on the anti-immigration uh, uh, approach and really win well. Let me also say I everything that Jasmine says I agree with. I mean I think we want to be very careful about how we proceed with uh, population growth. I just don't think there's any evidence for this quote-unquote virtuous cycle. There are no economic magic bullets. If there were, you know, a country like China or India or Brazil, all of which are bigger than us in GDP, would be in that virtuous cycle, and they're not. I mean, the point is that we need uh, to do exactly what Jasmine said, but by carefully looking at the evidence, and the evidence doesn't support this claim that that population growth is the magic bullet. All right, Jasmine, let me, let me hear from you on uh, how you think this will be handled in the campaign and how you think it should be handled and what, what voters should be thinking about. Well, I don't think immigration is at all an election issue, um, and it should not be uh, the cause of any divide over the course of, uh, of this election or any election. This is very much a long-term imperative for Canada, and I feel as though, although there are concerns um, that should be raised and discussed, and we should talk openly about immigration levels, on the whole, Canadians are very accepting uh, of, of immigration, and it is our latent strength in Canada. We have a successful model of, of uh, economy accommodating and integrating uh, immigrants, and uh, a wonderfully um, open approach to diversity and pluralism. Okay. That is something we should build on, and we feel greatly that it should be scaled. All right, we'll have, we'll have to end it on that, but I want to thank you both for your time uh, for this important conversation. Uh, Jasmine Gill in Toronto, David Green in uh, Vancouver. Thank you both. Thank you for having thank me. Thank you. And that is all for another Vote 2019 edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC tonight, the cable public affairs channel. I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching. Our campaign coverage continues on CPAC. Stay tuned.